Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. An older Luther, sitting at his table, recalled, When I was 20 years old, I had not yet seen a Bible. I thought that there were no Gospels and Epistles, except those which were written in the Sunday postals or sermons. Finally, I found a Bible in the library, and forthwith I took it with me into the monastery. I began to read, to reread, and to read it over again to the great astonishment of Dr. Staupitz. When this Luther was still a monk at Erfurt, as we've talked about, in that Augustinian cloister there in what's today Germany, it probably an agony of soul at this point, when he's recalling this, looking back, at some point in the library, he comes across a Bible. He had been taught, so he had already encountered teachings of the Bible, but in his day, if you went to seminary even, to become a priest, the Bible was not strongly emphasized. Instead, it was the scholastic theologians or the fathers, but not usually the Bible. So it wasn't until he's 20 years old and he's in the library, he encounters a Bible, most certainly in Latin, and he takes that Bible and he begins to read and to reread and to devour it. This is a fitting scene for us to remember as we come now to the conclusion of this three-part series on Martin Luther, this German monk, and really the greatest of the reformers in the Reformation of the 16th century. Now, we have watched Luther as a young man, troubled, enter into the monastery. Why? To try to win God's favor. And we have watched him in the monastery fail, quite aware that he's failed to win God's favor, though he was the very best monk and nearly killed himself with his monkery. We've seen him as he took his trip to Rome in 1510. And there at the very heart of the Roman Catholic Church, which Martin Luther loved, where he suspected, he believed for most of his life, that he would find salvation there. And when he went to Rome, he was sorely disappointed. And his suspicions were confirmed. The salvation he was looking for was not going to be found in Rome. Not in the church and its system. He was enduring this unfectung that we've talked about, this horrible experience before God of his own guilt, this great trial, and struggling to find relief, and the church was not offering it, because what he found in the church of his day, instead of relief for his trouble, he found a theology of glory. The church was extending itself upward in political power. What he needed was not what the church could offer. The church in its theology of glory had not even experienced the unfecting of soul that he was experiencing, much less did it have an answer to how to deal with that. And so Luther in the library lays his hand for the first time upon the scriptures. And in that old, old book, which had been sort of covered in dust, somewhat unintentionally and also somewhat intentionally by the Roman Catholic Church, and other traditions at the time, when he opens that book and begins to read, he understands, this book understands my difficulty. 
and he suspects that in this book he will find relief. We've watched him find relief. We saw his tower experience. He opens this Bible and then he moves and he becomes even a teacher of Bible, not at Erfurt anymore, but he goes to Wittenberg and he's now a professor of Bible and he's studying in order to teach and he opens his Bible to the Gospel of Romans and he wrestles with the text and he reads there, the righteous person, that's what he wanted to be before God, shall live by faith, not by works. Not by the seven sacraments of the church, not by the monastery, not by climbing hands and knees up the Scala Sancta in Rome and praying my paternosters on your way up, not by indulgences, it's by faith. And he realizes Paul's argument is simple faith in Christ, what he has done on the cross, and you can have relief. You can have the love of God. You can have all your sin and guilt removed placed upon Christ on the cross and his righteousness made yours by faith, even apart from the Roman Catholic Church. That was the relief he was looking for, so he took it, he taught it, and as we saw just last week, the whole world condemned him for the word that he was teaching. But even as the whole world condemned him, He was so captivated, he could say, my conscience is held captive by the word of God. Here I stand, I can't do anything else, I can do no other. That was the famous statement he made at the Diet of Worms, 1521, you remember now. The church had already condemned him as a heretic, but the Holy Roman Empire, which was over the Germany of that day and many other nations in Europe, it had to decide what to do with this cantankerous monk. And he said, here I stand, I can't do anything else. The empire agrees, he needs to die. And they condemn him. And that's where we re-enter the story. And really, I want to offer a metaphor because what's happening here, in a more spiritual sense, is Luther has just broken open a cage. That's the thing he's done. In his teaching, at the Diet of Worms even, and he has let out a lion. And that lion is the word of God. Luther's not strong. He's weak. He's got problems. But what he's done is he's begun to open the word of God to the people. The lion has come out roaring and shaking its mane. The empire realizes this. The pope knows it. The devil is aware. And all cast themselves full force against what's happening to get the lion back in the cage. But as they're about to discover, this is not a weak lion. And this is not a tame line. This is the word of God. So we're picking up our story now. Luther has just left the Diet of Worms. The amazing thing here is, you remember with John Huss, the Emperor Sigismund, or to be Emperor Sigismund, had given him a promise of safe conduct and did not keep it because Huss was a heretic. Charles V is the emperor now, about 100 years later, He might have done the same to Luther and that would end our story, but he did not. He kept his word for whatever reason. Luther is given 21 days after this Diet of Worms to go back home to Wittenberg. And at the end of that 21 days, he's fair game. It's very unlikely he's going to survive, actually, with everyone against him. His own prince, Frederick, is for him. And this prince is a rather important prince, but really the whole world's against him and calling for his death. 
Here I stand is still ringing in the ears of Charles V, the emperor, and all the German princes who had heard him make this statement. And so he's on his way home, and probably as he rides in this wagon toward Wittenberg, these are probably some of the things that fill his mind. He's aware, and certainly later writings show, he's aware he's almost certainly going to die within a few months. So as he's riding in this wagon with some friends, companions, the wagon is near Eisenach in Germany, and it's <clears throat> preparing to enter into some woods. And all of a sudden, there's the clamor of horses' hooves. And armed horsemen ride up to the wagon, attack it, take hold of Martin Luther, pull him to the ground. His companion berates these people for what they're doing. They ignore him, and they take Luther, they throw him on one of the horses, and they ride off. <clears throat> He's been kidnapped. Far away in the Netherlands, the artist Albrecht Durer, maybe you know him, he's a famous artist, he was following Luther's teachings and he wrote in his diary around this time, oh God, if Luther is dead, who will henceforth explain to us the gospel? The lion was just coming out of the cage and the fear is, if Luther's now dead, will it go back in? After being driven about all day on horseback, circuitous routes, finally close to midnight, they bring him toward a huge castle, the castle at Wartburg. And at some point, they reveal their identity. His kidnappers are friends. Frederick the Wise, his prince in Wittenberg, had sent these men to kidnap Luther because he knew someone else would do it if he didn't do it. And he took him here to the Wartburg, said, don't even let me know where Luther is. Hide him away. Keep him safe. So Luther is safe. And of course, <clears throat> Luther doesn't want to be at the Wartburg, but I suppose it's better than dying. So there he is as the Reformation continues in beloved Wittenberg. He's hiding away at the Wartburg. He lets his beard grow out. He wears the clothes of a knight. He conceals himself so no one knows that Martin Luther, whom all the world is seeking, is hiding in this castle. Now, he knew that the word of God would proceed with him or without him. But since he was alive, he thought it might as well be with him. And so he set himself to do what he could do, which was to write. Now, in about a year's time, as he's in this castle, as the Reformation continues in Wittenberg... He writes several things, but by far the most important thing Luther writes is this. He translates the New Testament into the German language. He wants the common people to have the word of God that has taken hold of him. So it might not be too surprising to us when we learn that it's really right about this time, early 1520s that the devil arrives for a showdown, really, against this reformation, against the word of God that's breaking out in Europe. This is when the main events take place. The devil is not pleased to see what's happening here, to see the word of God getting out, getting into the minds and into the hands of the people. The devil has already attempted by brute force to kill Luther, but of course that hasn't worked because 
Prince Frederick, he's been a problem. He's an important prince. And the Emperor Charles V, who would otherwise come in and just clear out the Reformation, is unwilling to do it because Prince Frederick is very important to him, especially with the Muslim threat. He needs the German princes in support. So brute force isn't going to work. And then any other thought of killing Luther by stealth isn't going to work because Luther's now hidden away in the Wartburg. And so the devil sets his sights on Wittenberg. Okay? So Wittenberg, where the Reformation is taking place and developing, now is the prime opportunity. The main reformer who's been leading the charge is out of the way. And even if the devil's not going to bring troops to charge in and just level the city... He knows, by long experience, there are other and even more effective ways to ruin a reformation than by brute force. He knows how to get the job done. And so begins the greatest troubles of Wittenberg. I'm just going to go through them with you here briefly. The first begins with a man named Karlstadt. When we talked about the debate at Leipzig, I portrayed it as a debate between John Eck and Martin Luther. It was actually a debate between John Eck and Andreas von Karlstadt. Karlstadt was a colleague of Luther at the University of Wittenberg and was really considered pretty much equal to Luther as a leader of the Reformation in many ways. Now with Luther out of the way, Karlstadt's importance is all the greater. He is leading, with a few others, the Reformation happening in Wittenberg. His level of influence in Wittenberg, in Germany, in the whole progress of the Reformation is immense. If anything were to happen in Karlstadt, that could lead to great problems. And the devil knows it. Karlstadt had a lot of influence... One thing he did not have, he did not have patience. Luther was willing to bring the Reformation in and patiently see it take hold among the people. Karl Stott was not. He said, we need to do things much faster than we're doing things. To keep it brief, what this led to was iconoclasm, which I talked about in our first lesson. That's where mobs of people were entering into churches and taking crucifixes and images and destroying them, shattering them, abusing priests, causing all kinds of chaos, which mobs like to do. And once you get mobs going, it's very hard to direct them. Karl Stott, by his teaching, by his work, was causing unrest in Wittenberg, And beyond that, he went into further teachings, especially later, that were just totally false. Karlstadt was a radical. He shared many of the ideas of Luther, but none of the checks. He went too far. And now there's unrest in the city. There's one nice scheme of the devil. At the same time, three men come into town from a nearby town called Zwickau. And these men say, We have spoken to God himself. And God has told us that what you're doing, going back to the Bible, it's useless. We're speaking with God. We have the spirit of God. Why do we need a Bible in the first place? We'll tell you what needs to happen. And this is the message from God, among other things, that God is establishing his kingdom and he's going to do it, if necessary, with the sword. The ungodly must be slaughtered. These were the Zwickau prophets. You and I can tell 
You should not listen to them. In the early years of the Reformation, it was not so easy to tell that. They started to gain influence in Wittenberg. That's December of 1521. Spring of the following year, 1522. Unrest in the cities. Wickow prophets causing all kinds of a mess. Luther finally has had enough. At the request of some friends, he says, I have to go back to Wittenberg even if it kills me. And it probably was going to kill him since he was a condemned man. But he goes back to Wittenberg, puts his life on the line. This was, Luther had been in a lot of danger up to this point. We've talked about that. This was probably the greatest danger. This was the point in 1522 when it was most likely Luther would be killed and it was most likely the Reformation would fail. This year, Luther returning, the city is in chaos. Nothing was certain except for the word of God. And so Luther, on his way back, writes to Prince Frederick. He says, all the sorrow I have had is nothing compared to this. I would gladly have paid for this with my life, for we can answer neither to God nor to the world for what has happened. The devil is at work in this. As for myself, my gospel is not from men. Concessions bring only contempt. I cannot yield an inch to the devil. It was with that spirit and that confidence in the word of God that Luther re-entered Wittenberg, began preaching, and by some miracle of the hand of God, really reclaimed the city for the Reformation. Karl Stott leaves, and there is a bit of peace still in the early 1520s. Ah, okay, the word of God has defeated the devil and his tactics. The devil does not give up that easily. He had really only begun in Wittenberg. Luther returns then, 1522. Some order is restored. Melanchthon, who we will talk about, I think, next week, who was another colleague, when Karl Stott was going crazy, he had said, the dam has broken and I cannot stem the waters. Luther returns, stems the waters. But then in 1525, the dam breaks again. This time much worse than it did the first time. The Roman Catholic Church had been arguing against Luther many things, but one of its chief arguments had been, if you undermine our authority, corrupt as it may be, but if you undermine it and if you proclaim a freedom of Christians to believe and not need the church and not need to obey through the church, but to believe and be justified, then you know what will happen? Revolution. Everyone will overthrow all authority. Luther had been adamantly denying that this would happen. In 1525, this happened. Whatever its connection to Luther, it was definitely seen as connected because the peasants rose up and revolted against the secular authorities, against the German princes and nobility. This is the Peasants' War, 1525. It did not last very long, but it was very bloody. And it was attached to Luther. The peasants had long been restless anyways. This would probably happen, have happened anyways. It had happened in the past anyways. But Luther's teaching, taken wrongly, did seem to precipitate it. Saying Christians have freedom. We don't have to submit to the church. And people took that too far and said, we don't have to submit to anyone. Rebelled against the princes. There was bloodshed. 
Luther was now afraid. This happened many times in his career where he realized when political events like this rose up, the danger was that the gospel he proclaimed, which was not primarily political, could get attached to a political movement. And when that movement died, the gospel would die with it. So Luther writes at this time, a somewhat regrettable and also somewhat understandable tract against called this against the robbing and murdering hordes of peasants. Luther had been sympathetic with the plight of the peasants who were crushed by the authorities over them and unjustly, but when the peasants took up the sword, he would not have it. Let everyone who can, Luther wrote in this tract to the rulers, smite, slay, and stab the peasants. They did. The peasant revolt was put down by the leaders, And the strange thing about it was the outcome of this revolt was the Roman Catholic Church could never forgive Luther for what they considered him starting the peasant revolt. And on the other hand, the peasants could never forgive Luther for trying to stop the peasant revolt. The devil's tactic seemed to be working, discrediting the message that he had. So now... The devil's been discrediting the message among the lower class of peasants. He's been discrediting it among the rulers who are now thinking, will this reformation lead to revolution? The devil has one more tool up his sleeve. He has in mind the intellectual elites. And what better way to discredit Luther and the word of God that he proclaims than to take the one man in Europe who was the best and the most respected scholar of all the humanists, the one everyone in every country looked up to, Erasmus of Rotterdam, and turn him against Luther. Erasmus had long been arguing against the abuses of the church, so when the Reformation broke out, he was a friend of the Reformation. But Erasmus was only half a friend of what Luther was doing, because Erasmus wanted to see the morals corrected, But he didn't want to see the doctrine changed. He didn't think the doctrine was the problem. For Luther, the doctrine, the teaching, that was the problem. And for Erasmus, it was the morals. Well, the church began to put more and more pressure on Erasmus, who always tried to stay in the middle, a peacemaker, never join a side. But the church increased its pressure until finally, in 1525, 24 actually, this year just before, he writes an attack against Martin Luther, explaining where they differ. The attack was called on the freedom of the will. Might seem strange, but what was happening is Luther was teaching that we are spiritually dead before God, therefore we can't work through the church to get to God. God, by his grace, has given his son, and God must extend his grace to us so that we may believe. Erasmus said, That can't be right. There has to be something that we can do to move toward God. Erasmus had a very high view of mankind. He was a humanist scholar. He was very promising in his day. We're going to fix everything by going back to the Roman classics and the Greeks. So he thought there's certainly something we can do. And besides, Erasmus wrote in this tract against Luther, besides, not only can we do something, But even on this matter, as on most matters in the Bible and doctrine, it's just not clear. Everyone has a different interpretation. 
So we shouldn't be making such a big deal about any particular doctrine. We should just try to live moral lives, try to reform the morals of the church, follow Jesus' example. Luther reads the work and his heart sinks. He knows he has to write a reply to the greatest scholar, the most reputed scholar who has turned against him. And at the, at the end of 1525, Luther writes a reply. The reply that Luther writes to this day is remembered as one of the most important theological writings of all time. This is consented by those who agree with it and those who don't agree with it. It was called On the Bondage of the Will against Erasmus on the Freedom of the Will. Basically, Luther began this tract. I'll paraphrase. He said, Erasmus, I admit you're much better at saying things than I am. The only advantage I have over you is that I actually have something to say. He argues we are dead in a spiritual sense. Our wills are bound. Erasmus had said, what's the point of the Bible giving you commands if you don't have a natural ability to obey? That would be like telling someone whose hands are bound, lift your arm, but you can't. It would be as if the law of God in the Bible was mocking you. And Luther said, but what if your hands were bound and you refused to admit it? Then if the law came in and said, raise your hand, It would not be so that you could do it because you can't. It would be so you would be broken and admit, I need help to have my hands unbound. That was the argument of his work. The law of God in the scriptures does not mean if God commands it, of course we can do it. It meant if God commands it, it's to show us our need of grace and our need of Christ. But Luther saw really behind Erasmus' arguments because there is something else at play here. Erasmus arguing that the Bible is not clear, that was going to be a huge problem for the Reformation. It depended upon the clarity of the Bible. And Luther saw right through Erasmus and said, basically, Erasmus, you're a coward. That's why you're making these arguments. That's why you want the Bible not to be clear. Not because it's not clear, but because if you try to stand in the middle and say, well, it's not really clear, you think you can avoid tumults and difficulty and death and can be a nice scholar in your ivory tower. And sadly, historically, this was true. That was true of Erasmus. Luther wrote, concerning the tumults that his teaching was causing, to wish to silence these tumults is nothing else than to wish to hinder the word of God and to take it out of the way. For the word of God, wherever it comes, comes to change and renew the world. Erasmus wanted glory. Luther wanted a cross. Because in the Bible he found a cross. And at the cross, though suffering and miserable and a terrible picture, that was salvation. That was God's revealed salvation. Erasmus didn't want it. Luther did. Luther would not deviate from the word of God. Not before Erasmus, not before the world. And that word of God continued progressing despite all these trials in 1525. In fact, moving on from this time, Luther's teachings, the gospel, the word of God were gaining traction across northern Germany and in large parts of Europe. 1530 at Augsburg, Luther is not allowed to come, but this is the pivotal moment. 
the emperor is there and he's going to decide what to do with the German princes. He's put up with them for a time. They want to follow this new teaching. He's put up with them. He's had other things, but now he's ready. He comes in. Luther can't come. It's all on the princes. And the German princes, several of them, stand up to the emperor, say, we will not bend the knee before the Roman Catholic Church and what you're calling us to do because the word of God says otherwise. The emperor said, yes, you will. We'll have a Corpus Christi procession. We'll raise the mass and you will venerate the mass. And the princes say, no, we will not. One of the princes says, before I do so, I will gladly kneel and let you cut off my head. The word of God, amazingly, continues to progress. And at that point, the emperor says, okay. And in 1530 at Augsburg, there's an Augsburg confession. This is what we believe about the gospel. And in those territories where the princes were Lutheran, the people were allowed to worship in that way. There was a sort of freedom. It wouldn't last forever, but that happens in 1530. The lion's been let out of the cage and try as the devil might, he can't get it back in. The word of God is on the loose. So this, I've given you a picture of the word of God in a sort of public way. This is the word of God triumphing in the world of Martin Luther. But as we're moving now to our second point, I want to go back. After 1530, nothing very interesting happens in Luther's life. There are a few things, but those last 16 years, any biography you read, maybe one chapter, two chapters. So I want to rewind Because it wasn't just pivotal that the word of God triumphed in Luther's world, but there was another and perhaps a greater tumult that was happening than these outward trials, and that was in Luther himself. Would the word of God triumph in Luther in his own private and personal issues that he was still dealing with? That's where we turn now. Now, the gospel, you remember, had certainly driven that unfectung of soul before God. It had driven it, much of it, away from Luther. He had embraced the gospel, but God, in his secret providence, had decided he would leave quite a bit of that inner turmoil in Luther, even after delivering him from his guilt. Luther later would look back on this and say, you know, God left that in me, those great trials and depressions and discouragements and despair, because without it, I don't think I would have understood the Bible to help others understand it too. So he saw there was a purpose in it, but all that being said, it was so severe that something had to be done just so he could function in the face of all his responsibilities. Was the word of God powerful enough to sustain him not just outwardly, but inwardly in what he was experiencing. In the year 1527, this is in the wake of the great trials we've been talking about, Luther crumbled before the many pressures he was facing. For more than a week, he wrote afterward, I was close to the gates of death and hell. I trembled in all my members. Christ was wholly lost. I was shaken by desperation and blasphemy of God. This trait in Luther seems unusual for a few reasons. One is, 
Didn't he rediscover the gospel? He has God's favor, and it seemed like that freed him, and he would go out and with boldness proclaim to his parishioners as a priest, these people he cared about, trust in God's forgiving goodness through Christ. But you and I are aware it's much easier to be confident for someone else when it comes to God's goodness than for ourselves. And this proof true of Luther, that was always what his depressions were based on. Is God good? Is, good? is he good to me? When he was doubting that. No doubt the devil's at hand here. Here's an important figure stirring and stoking these up. These bouts of depression which continue throughout his life are also unusual because when you look at Luther, he was very good-humored. He was funny. He was fun to be around. It's enjoyable to read Luther more than it is to read any of the other reformers because he's writing important things and he's also saying some pretty funny things, sometimes a little too coarse of things, but he's good-humored. He's joyful. He's a guy you want in the room probably unless he's your enemy. You want him in there. It's fun. He loves music and other things we won't get into, but he's just a joyful kind of person except when he's not. You say, how can you have in one figure such extreme highs and elation and boldness before the world and then crashing down into such extreme lows? One of his best biographers, Roland Baton, I've drawn on him a ton for these classes. He said this, referring to Luther earlier in life, there is just one respect in which Luther appears to have been different from other youths of his time, namely in that he was extraordinarily sensitive and subject to recurrent periods of exaltation and depression of spirit. This oscillation, this moving of mood, plagued him throughout his life. We won't have time to touch on a lot of this, but this is partially why later in life, getting to the last 16 years of his life until he dies in 1546, later in life is when all the embarrassing things happen, the things that we as Protestants don't like to remember. For example, it was later in his life, Luther had expected the Jewish people would convert when they heard the gospel and the end of the world would commence. The Jewish people did not convert when they heard his gospel. Luther was very bitter. He thought they were holding back the return of Christ. And later in his life, as a very bitter old man, he wrote his worst tract called Against the Jews and Their Lies. He called for the burning of synagogues. That tract is still used in neo-Nazi groups today. That's embarrassing. That was, a, that was a low point. Luther was the kind of person when he had the truth, he was up here and bold and could hold it to the end. He had to be that kind of person or there would be no reformation. But he was also the kind of person because of that, that if he got hold an error, he would hold it to the bitter end. And it was unfortunate. But a lot of that came to his personality. He was a man who went up and he went down, but what, he never was really here. He was always fluctuating. Luther knew the word of God was going to conquer in the world. But there was a further trial for that word because could it conquer down here when he was despairing of God's goodness? In hindsight, we can say, yes, it did carried him through his life. There were times when Luther fought his deep darkness and depression in a direct way. 
even sort of arguing with the devil, using the gospel and the righteousness of Christ. But there were also very indirect and unexpected ways that Luther fought against depression. Really that the word of God freed him to survive this darkness he experienced. For example, here's one example, Luther's humor. Where did that come from? I think, taking this from uh, Carl Truman, he says, I think that the humor that's throughout Luther comes from his view of mankind, which comes from the Bible. If you really think that man is nothing, is little before God, not this great noble thing Erasmus thinks, but just is nothing, is dirt before God, and God gives man value and lifts him up. But if that's your view of mankind, it's hard to take yourself or others too seriously. And I think God used that to help Luther endure the incredible trials, the whole world wanting to kill him. But he could endure that thinking, what is mankind? A very biblical thought. But there's another way that God's word in an indirect sense, I think, kept Luther alive, protect him from himself. And that was in the Bible's teaching on singleness and marriage. Now, Paul had taught in 1 Corinthians 7, you remember, that singleness is superior to marriage. He teaches that. If God's gifted you for singleness, because it frees you up to serve the Lord. But Paul said, now as a concession, not a command, I say this. The Roman Catholic Church said, as a command, I say this. So if you were a priest or a monk or a nun and really wanted to serve the Lord, the church forced you to say a vow, really, if you want to do that, you have to say a vow that you can never marry. It led to a lot of immorality in the church, as you remember, but it also just wasn't biblical, and Luther, over time, came to see that. The Word of God was helping him to see singleness is good if you're called to singleness, otherwise not so much. So soon, as Luther's seeing this and teaching this, monasteries and nunneries are disbanding. They're leaving, and they're marrying monks and nuns, and a lot of times they're marrying each other. Friends suggested to Luther, hey, why don't you marry? And Luther said, not in a thousand years. In fact, earlier on when Luther was still wrestling with the idea of monks can marry, he said, good heavens, will our Wittenbergers give wives to monks? Not to me. Later he came to see a monk could be married. It wasn't biblical to forbid it, but he still said, no, not to me, because I'm going to die. He said, the fact that in the next few months I will probably die means it's not a good time to start a family. So he refused to marry. But this, of course, was before he faced his most persistent opponent of all, a nun, Catherine von Bura, also known as Katie. She was a nun who, along with several other nuns, heard the gospel, believed the gospel, realized that singleness is not required by the Bible. So they wanted to escape where they were. And Luther organized to help these nuns escape. When they came to Wittenberg, he organized to get them married. They wanted to be married. He organized that. But he was having trouble with one. She was not marrying the people he's trying to organize her with. First, the other guy married, and then she didn't want to marry the other guy. So Katie, this is the one, Katie eventually suggests through a messenger I'd marry you. 
Luther still thinks no. Plus, he's 42 years old, much older. And in that day, that's very old in that day, 42 years old. He thinks, I'm not going to do this. Well, then Luther goes home, sees his father Hans. You remember who was disappointed in him? Tells his father, probably thinking, this is a great joke. This nun wants to marry me. And his father Hans says, well, you should do it. Hans wanted grandchildren. So he encourages Luther to do it. So Luther comes back and with this added impetus, my father, the fact that this will really upset the Pope, that I'm breaking this vow, he decides, really not for romantic reasons, he didn't have a strong romantic interest in Katie, he just decides, we'll do this. It's interesting, in later in life, Luther would kind of summarize his life while sitting at the dinner table. And when he summarizes it, he says, you know, I started as a peasant of peasants. My father tried to make me into a lawyer. I left and I became a monk. My father didn't like it, quote, and then I got into the Pope's hair and married an apostate nun. (laughs) Who could have read that in the stars? But that's exactly what he did. This apostate nun was one of the means by which God really kept Luther sane and preserved him, perhaps even kept him alive. And that was no easy job. They get married in 1525, right around the time of all these trials, and right before many more. There's no easy job to be married to Luther. Luther was not good with money. Now, he had taken a vow of poverty, I believe, It's an Augustinian, and even though he didn't hold to all those vows, it never really left him. He was not good with money. He gave everything away to everyone. The only reason they had a place to live was because the prince gave him as a wedding gift the Augustinian cloister, now disbanded because of his teaching, as a place to live. So he and his wife, new wife Katie, lived there. Katie had to do all that she could to turn that monastery really into a home. I do not worry about debts, debts, said Luther, because when Katie pays one, another comes. (laughs) At another time, he wrote to a friend, I'm sending you a vase as a wedding present. P.S. Katie has hidden it. But their marriage, nonetheless, it really was a very sweet and a very rich marriage. In fact, it's one of the greatest legacies of Luther's life, is that he had a fantastic marriage as a great example to others. And God used it to lift him, maybe to distract him away from a lot of the darkness that he faced. Luther and Katie had six children. The first one born in 1526, they named Hans after his father. They brought the child to Luther. They had wrapped him up in cloths and they brought the child to Luther. Luther saw the child and he said, kick little fellow. That's what the Pope tried to do to me, but I got loose. (laughs) And so we come then to the end of our lectures on Luther. You can see that God's word has now come forth into medieval Europe. It's broken forth like a lion out of its cage. And it has conquered in Luther's world and it has conquered in Luther's own life, preserving him to the end. Like I said, he lived another 16 years after the Augsburg Confession of 1530. He dies in 1546. There would be a lot of ups and downs. It was not clear sailing from this point out by any means. But the main thing had happened. 
the word of God was on the loose. And from this point on, nothing can ever be the same, as we'll see as we continue to consider other reformers. The devil had raged in every way he knew how against this word that was breaking forth, but it could not be stopped. And as for Luther himself, here was this little German Augustinian monk. And as he said, the word of God had taken him captive. And therefore, he had proclaimed it. And as he also said, after he had proclaimed it, he sat back and the word of God did everything. Brought about a reformation. This was Luther's conviction, even in the darkest moment of his life, moments of his life in 1527, that deep depression that he felt then. Because 1527, on the other side of that darkness, was the same year that Martin Luther wrote a hymn that you and I know very well, where he expressed in the middle of all the trials, the peasant rebellion, Erasmus against him, the world, the empire, the church, everything against him, in this tiny little town, this tiny little monk, and he wrote these words with which I conclude these lessons on Luther. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. For God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That word above all earthly powers, no things to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Thus concludes Martin Luther. We have a few minutes now. If anyone has any questions either about what we've talked about today or really any of Luther's life, we can field some of those. Yes, Dan. Carlstadt um, was the iconoclast. Mm-hmm. And even though Luther spoke against it, was later on, he actually invited Carlstadt family into his home. Yeah. So the question is, how much was Karlstadt a cause for Luther to be against the Anabaptists? Yeah, great question. Dan, Dan's question in summary, you know, Karlstadt was not, at least at first, he was not originally an, an Anabaptist. We will talk about the Anabaptists more in depth in our last lesson, talk about Menno Simons, who will represent the Anabaptists. Um, but the question is, with Karlstadt, how much was Karlstadt's influence, Luther's reaction against him, an influence on Luther really opposing the Anabaptist movement? The Anabaptists believed, like we believe, that you should be baptized after you believe, after you've trusted. Because the common practice, even among all the magisterial reformers, was you baptize infants when they're young. And that way, a large part of that was you had to do that to keep them as a part of 
your territory. You know, you had to, the church and the state were one thing. So even if you became a Lutheran territory, you had to baptize all the infants because if you didn't, then you'd have like two states because the church and state were the same thing. The Anabaptists came and said, well, the Bible says you believe and you're baptized. And Luther at first was somewhat sympathetic and later said, that can't be. It's not going to work. It's not, practically, it's not going to work. And then he had reasons for that. Um, the answer to your question is absolutely. In fact, Karl Stott's influence on Luther, both in terms of the Anabaptists and we didn't talk about, we'll talk about later, in terms of the way he viewed the Swiss reformers, especially Zwingli, Luther's never going to be able to unite with the Swiss in a way that people were hoping would happen. Reformation's happening in Switzerland same time under Zwingli. People are hoping those can come together and the only reason they couldn't probably comes back to Karlstadt, same thing. Because Karlstadt was really, what had happened with him is he had come to take such a strong, drastic view of the separation of the material world and the spiritual world. And it had become so strong, that's why Part of why, I believe for him even, he, would, he believed in, uh, eventually, he might have gotten to the point where he got rid of baptism altogether. I don't know if he got to that point, but he got close. Because for him, even baptism, it's a material, physical, it's water. It's not important. The physical things are not important. Uh, Karl Stott also denies consubstantiation, which Luther holds very dear. The idea that uh, in the Eucharist, Luther denies that the bread and the wine become the body and blood of Jesus, but he says somehow it's still there. Karlstadt denies that. And so Luther sees Karlstadt as this crazy radical wow, and so his view of both the Anabaptists, yes, and of Zwingli and the whole Swiss Reformation, Luther, you know, taking hold of something real strong, when he hears Zwingli, a great reformer, tell him like, no, the body and blood are not there. In Luther's mind, he's thinking, Karlstadt, radicals, and all the crazy stuff that goes with that. So Karlstadt did have a lot of negative impact in a reactionary way. Good point. Any other questions here? Yeah. Um, when Luther was taken into hiding, 1520 or 21? 21. Did Karlstadt know that he was not killed, that he was in hiding? Did the men who carried on know that Luther was safe? Not right away. Marilyn's asking when, when Luther was kidnapped, taken into hiding, did the people in Wittenberg, did they know that he was in hiding? Not at first, but what had ended up happening is they started getting letters saying things like, John from Patmos writes to you, saying like, here I am in exile, but I'm still alive, I'm not dead. Okay, but they were not afraid to continue on, even though they thought he might be dead. They were not afraid to continue on, absolutely. They thought they'd have to do it without him if they have to. Okay. So, maybe one more question before we finish. The back. Did they wind up publishing his German Bible? Oh, yeah, great question. Did they wind up publishing his German Bible? Yes. In fact, his New Testament, we call it the September Test, excuse me, the September Testament was published after he returned to Wittenberg. So he had finished it probably while he was at the Wartburg. They published his New Testament. And then later in life, in fact, it's an important point because later in life, he's turning into a. Um, rather unpleasant old man. Melanchthon had said, in fact, his colleague, we had hoped as Luther got older, he'd kind of soften. He said, but it has not happened that way. And Luther was upset at everybody, partly reactionary. But one thing that helps us to see Luther was not just a monster, as some would portray him at the end, is 
a lot of the work he was doing those last 16 years is he was helping update, finish translating the Bible. So the German Bible eventually was published, I believe, I'm almost certain it was in his lifetime, the whole German Bible. And in fact, to this day, I'm no expert on this, but the German language apparently has been shaped by Luther's German Bible, much in the way the King James has shaped our own English language. And so I think someone had said even if someone tries to read German, the German of Luther's Bible, which is now 500 years old, they might find some of it seems like this doesn't seem old at all. It's because that's how closely it's shaped German even to this very day. All right, I've got to finish it here. Oh, yeah, last comment, question. Oh, good clarification. He's asking, am I using Pope and Emperor interchangeably? I'm not actually. The Pope, Leo X, during much of Luther's time, and then Hadrian and then others, is heading the church, the ecclesiastical side of things. He's down in Rome, in Italy. And then you have the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. And that's the secular. And in that day, it was seen as those go together. And technically, the emperor is supposed to support the Pope. Actually, what had happened, one of the reasons the emperor, Charles V, one of the reasons he could not basically shut down the Reformation as early as he wanted to in the 20s is because he had to fight France. And after he defeated France, he went down to Italy and had to fight the Pope. (laughs) So they didn't always get along. He actually defeated the Pope's forces and kind of held the Pope captive, I think, until they could settle it. So they are different entities. This is Charles V is the emperor, a very young emperor. And then you've got the Pope, who's Leo X at the Diet of Worms. Then it kind of goes on, Hadrian and a few others. So, does that clarify that? Holy Roman Empire and Roman Catholic Church. Connected but different. What did Luther die of? Man, I shouldn't say, but... So, what ends up happening? 1546, Luther is, at that point, in that day, very old and very sickly. He had had sickness his whole life, lots of problems his whole life. That his wife was basically his doctor, keeping him alive. And when you get to 1546, he was really sick. Melanchthon was also sick at the time, his assistant, but somebody from Mansfeld, which is where he grew up, said, hey, we've got two counts here who can't get along. They need someone to settle the dispute. Melanchthon's too sick to go, and as Roland Bainton says, Luther's too sick to live, but he goes, and he goes and settles it, and then he dies in his childhood town. So I don't know specifically what it was. I don't know if anyone knows specifically, but he was old and worn out at that time, so... All right, let me pray and we are done here. Lord, thank you very much for your power, your work, and your word. And my prayer is that you would grant that from this place, your word would be proclaimed faithfully, the same gospel, that we would not swerve to the right or to the left, that we would not be cowardly in our proclamation, but we would be bold and whatever comes, comes, and we would trust you that just to let the lion out of the cage is enough and you will do all the rest. Please help us to be faithful proclaimers, all of us, of the gospel message. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.